Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We finally made it to one of the best chapters in all of Scripture, the resurrection. We've been contemplating slowly and in depth all of the the events that surround the crucifixion. And now there's a turn in the corner. We come to some of the greatest literature of all, and that is what gives us hope. John chapter 20. Let's pray. Lord, the reason that we always pause before we consider any text, it's our way of saying that we need your help in understanding it. Because as we understand, it can't only be with mental acuity or capacity. It must be something deeper. It must affect our actions. Only that can be done with the work of your Spirit. And so we say to you that we submit to you. And we ask that you would search us. And as you search us, direct us. Establish our goings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How does a person know anything at all? That is, how is knowledge formed? How is knowledge established? How is knowledge developed? Those questions give rise to a branch of philosophy known as, here's the million dollar word, epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge, especially how knowledge is validated and the methods of acquiring knowledge. That branch of philosophy seeks to know how a person can come to know something is true and to believe it is true. Now, why is that important? It's simple because what we do is based on what we know. If what you know is faulty, then what you do, your behavior following your belief, will also be faulty. So if I say I believe in gravity but I'm wearing weights on my ankles everywhere I go, that betrays my belief is not genuine. Ravi Zacharias said, the modern student goes away to college in order to learn. The same student comes back from the same school knowing that there is no way to know anything. That is so true and so sad. It's the idea that, well, you really can't know anything for sure. There is no absolute knowledge at all. So in their philosophy class, under epistemology, I guess if you put a question mark, you pass the test. There's three people who come to a cemetery in the text we're about to read. They come to the graveyard. All of them walk away knowing something. But only one of them is right. We have in our text Mary Magdalene. She sees something with her own eyes. She makes a report based on what she sees, but she is wrong in her report. 
Peter comes and he sees something with his own eyes. He doesn't quite know what to make of it. He's puzzled by it. John comes and sees something with his own eyes. And he forms an understanding and a belief. Verse 1, chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. We believe that that is John the Apostle. John had a love for anonymity and loved to be called the one whom Jesus loved. He's the author of the book and he doesn't name himself. That's his style. So Mary Magdalene came to Peter and to John and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. Watch this. So they both ran together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came to the tomb first. Wants to make sure you know that. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, and John could have easily have written, panting, out of breath. (laughs) Following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away to their own homes. Did you notice that all three of the people mentioned in the text all knew something based upon what they had seen that day and what they experienced? But all the results varied. It wasn't the same. What Mary saw and believed and what Peter saw, what John saw and believed, were all different. There was a little boy who was at home on a Sunday afternoon. He came out of his room, very puzzled, and said, Mom, is it true that we all come from dust? He had been in Sunday school that day. Apparently he heard that. His mom smiled and said, Well, yes, sweetheart. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible tells that We all came essentially from dust, and we're all going to return to dust. We came from it, we're going to go there. And the little boy said, Well, I just looked under my bed, and there's someone who's either coming or going. (laughs) That little boy formed a belief based upon what he had seen and experienced. He wasn't accurate, of course. He just simply made the leap that if there is dust, there must be a person coming or going. Whenever we talk of the resurrection of Christ, we typically speak of the empty tomb. But the tomb of Jesus Christ really wasn't empty. There was something inside of it. Interesting that when people die, their relatives will sometimes place things in the casket. I've heard of some crazy things being placed in caskets like golf clubs. I don't know what people are thinking. 
or um, playing cards, alcohol, drugs. Like what, to take away the pain? Well, what is this? The Egyptians used to make an entire culture out of burying their dead with the accoutrements of life. Some of the pharaohs that were buried, well, King Tut, King Tutankhamun, the boy king, was buried with the equivalent of three-fourths billion dollars worth of items, from clothing to shoes to jewelry, etc., etc. When Jesus was placed in the tomb and then resurrected, there was something that was left behind. It was the not-quite-empty tomb. And what was left behind forms a clue. They all saw it, but John saw something there, and it says that he believed. So we're going to look at this story again. We're going to look at it from three different angles, and with each angle comes a principle. We begin with the first two verses. The false report. It says, now on the first day of the week. What day is that? Sure, Sunday. This day. Today is the first day of the week. This was a Sunday morning. This answers the question, why in the book of Acts, the earliest apostles started meeting on Sunday rather than on the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday. They were commemorating the resurrection. That's why the Bible says they met on the first day of the week. So, on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. Actually, Mary Magdalene wasn't the only woman to visit the tomb. The other Gospels put together give us the picture that there were at least four women who came to the tomb that day. John only records Mary Magdalene. Why? Because she came the earliest. It says that she came to the tomb early while it was still dark. The others came after sunrise. She came while it was dark, early. Early is a technical word in the Greek for the last of the four watches of the night, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. She came to the tomb. Then she ran, after she saw what was done, that the stone had been taken away, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they laid him. Who was Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene was a woman who had a very unique love for Jesus. Because Jesus had done for her what no one had ever been able to do, and that was give her forgiveness. In Luke chapter 8, we're told that Mary Magdalene once had seven demons and they were cast out of her. Her life was a living hell when she met Jesus. Like the old Beatles song, she had a devil in her heart, literally. She was demonized, demon-possessed. She was tormented. That was her background. The Jewish Talmud tells us that the town she came from, Magdala, that's why we get the name Mary Magdalene, or Mary who lived in Magdala, that Magdala was known for its prostitution. That's why most people think that she was a very loose woman morally. But Jesus also said, the one that has been forgiven much, the same loves much, 
And this woman loved Jesus. That's why she was last at the cross and she was first at the tomb to show her love. She couldn't come on the Sabbath day. As soon as the Sabbath was over, she woke up early and she headed out for the tomb. When she got there, we're told in verse 1 that the stone was gone from the entrance. Those big, round, circular, rolling stones that weigh somewhere between one, one and a half to two tons that sealed the tomb shut. It was gone. And she thought immediately the worst. They've stolen his body. Now this was a common crime. Grave robbing was indeed very typical in those days. It became so common that eventually the emperor Claudius issued capital punishment for that offense. If a grave was robbed, if a body was moved, if a Roman stone that had been sealed was moved, that was capital punishment. Notice what she says. She says, they, notice that in verse 2, they have taken away the Lord, and we do not know where they have laid him. Question, who's they? Nobody knows. But it doesn't need to say Because we get this. We do this all the time. Right? We say, well, you know, they say. Really, who's they? Well, you know, they've discovered. We just typically, for hearsay, pull out the generic they. It was just something that forms an opinion, but it's better just to couch it and say, I know what happened. They've taken away his body. They've stolen it. So she comes, she sees, and she assumes she's connecting all the dots. The only problem is she's dead wrong. Here's what I want you to see. Mary, out of the broken emotion and sorrow in her heart, makes an assumption. And the assumption is inaccurate. Did you know that assumption is the lowest form of communication? And yet people live by it. They don't talk it out. They don't discuss it. They're not straight eyeball to eyeball. Let's get the facts straight. They assume things. See, I did it again. They assume things. We know what that is like. All the things you read into a situation that may or may not be true, that's assumption. Assumption is the tone of voice you assign to an email that may or may not be true, might not be there. You take it one way. It might not have been written that way. Assumption is the motive you attach to somebody's silence. They didn't call me back. They didn't write me back. That must mean something is wrong. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Assumption is you filling in the blanks, coloring in the black and white with your own color scheme. That's an assumption. Okay, so it's true, the stone is rolled away, there's no body inside. But was it true that the body was stolen? Nope. The Jews will try to make that up in Matthew 28 as a common belief. And that's what they'll say, oh, that's because the body was stolen. We'll see why that's impossible in a minute. So what she said wasn't true. Jesus never predicted, I'm going to die and they're going to steal my body. The Old Testament never predicted the Messiah's body would be stolen, and it didn't happen. 
So there's a principle that emerges out of this. Not every idea about Christ is correct. Even when those ideas are spoken by well-meaning followers of Jesus. What she said about him was inaccurate. That's why any belief held by anyone must be evaluated by something more than that person's experience. Their experience is their experience. That's a subjective way of knowing things. There has to be something greater, more objective. Now, I have a theory. This is just Skip's opinion. I believe it's her background and her profile that helped form her assumption. She lived a hard life before she met Jesus. She had seen the dark underbelly of humanity. If indeed she was a loose woman from a town of prostitutes, she had seen men with their worst motivations doing their worst possible things. And yes, she has discovered Jesus Christ and she has been forgiven. But you know what it's like in a moment of crisis, we often revert back to our old ways of thinking. She thought, I know what happened. They did their worst. They stole his body. That was her assumption, a false report. Let's move on in the text. We come to the first responders. In verse 3, Peter therefore went out. And the other apostle. The other apostle is the author of the book, John. And we're going to the tomb. And so they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Okay, let's back up. The disciples had all been locked behind closed doors, confused, scared like little kids, not understanding what has happened. And at first, when the women came and said that Jesus had been risen from the dead, the other Gospels tell us they didn't believe it. Listen to how Luke puts it. For their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But there were two, there were two in that room, Peter and John. Their ears went up like my doggy when I come home and call his name. (laughs) Peter and John heard that and they got out of that room and they, they undertook the first resurrection marathon. They ran to the tomb. I find that a little bit interesting. Mary tells them, they don't say, Mary, take my arm, let's go together. They just sort of leave her in the dust and run. Gentlemen, right? Um, Yep, John tells us that he beat Peter. Peter was sort of like a fullback. He's only good for 50 yards. John was younger, probably, in better shape. Why did John write this? Did John want forever to be... Uh, known as the guy who beat Peter in the resurrection marathon. I beat Peter. I beat Peter. Maybe, but I don't think so. I don't think John would have included that detail for that reason in this place. He might have. Here's another thought. Do you remember growing up when you did something that really wasn't great around the house? You were with your mom, and your mom would simply say, Wait till your dad gets home. She didn't even have to say it rough. She could just say, wait till your dad gets home. And you thought, "Uh uh-oh, that's right. Dad is going to come home. And if I'm not right with mom and therefore not right with dad, I'm in trouble. Remember that? 
So when dad came through the door, if things were good with you and mom and you and dad, you were happy to see him. If they weren't, you weren't too happy to be around him. I think that's how it is with Peter. Last time Jesus and Peter were together, Peter denied Jesus afterwards. Even though he said, I'll never deny you, he denied him three times. And Jesus looked at Peter when he was arrested. And Peter's coming to the tombs with mixed emotions, to say the least, with a load of guilt. He's not too excited about getting there and being back in that situation and getting close to it again. Oh, he's going to come and check it out, but uh uh-oh, things are different with Peter. Now, there's a principle here with this. Not every reaction to Christ is the same. You'll notice there are three different responses here. Mary came, saw the tomb was empty, the stone was removed, and she thought the body's been stolen. Peter comes, and he saw, and he's puzzled by the whole thing, and thought, huh, an empty tomb. Whereas in verse 8, John saw and believed. Okay, now stop for a moment. If you just read it in English, you have the same word. She saw, he saw, he saw, he saw, he saw. It's repeated several times. It's the same word. In the Greek language, there are three, get this, three different words used in this text for they saw. I want you to notice them. In verse 1 and in verse 5, that's the first word. Mary saw, that is, she simply noticed. Verse 5, he, that is John, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there and did not go in. It's a simple word, blepo, in Greek. It just simply means to take note of. I see it. Okay. I'm observing it. There's a second word. If you um, look at verse 6, this is Peter. Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. That's just like Peter, isn't it? Get out of my way. Let me get in there. Right? He's impetuous. He wants to get close. He went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Different word altogether. This is the Greek word, not blepo, but theoreo. I know it sounds weird. It's just, we get the word theater from this word. It means to study something, to gaze at something because there's something unusual that catches your attention. So Peter looked in and went, huh, look at that. He checked it out. Verse 8 is an entirely different word. Then the other disciple, that is John, came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and he believed. This is the word orao. It's in its aorist form, iden, which means to see with understanding and comprehension. He looked and he got it. He connected all the dots. Something made sense to him. He said, There must have been a resurrection. And it says he believed. James Montgomery Boyce says, In that moment, John the Apostle became the first Christian. Jesus has not appeared to John yet, or Peter, or Mary, but John believed. Now the other two, Peter and Mary, they will come to understand that Jesus is risen. But they're not yet on the same page with John. That's the point I want to make. Be patient with people 
who have a different response to the truth than you have. Okay, you've become mature, you've become enlightened, you understand things in the Scripture. But sometimes I observe Christians who become so zealous, they've discovered something. Wow, it's right there in the Bible, it's so clear. How come everybody doesn't know this? And they make it their goal to make sure everybody knows this. Maybe it's a long forgotten truth or a truth that they never saw until now or an experience that they're seeing with the Lord, some epiphanal moment, and now they've just got to boldly share it with everybody. Okay, cool, but, but back off a little bit. Allow God to grow up and get those others to realize, just like He has for you, just like He was so patient with you, be patient with them. Soon, both of these... Peter and Mary will also understand what John has come to understand. Let's go back to the text. Go back to verse 8 and let's finish off where we have read. There's the third angle, the factual reality. Then the other disciple, again we know that is John, who came to the tomb first, there it is again, he's first. He went in also and he saw and believed, for as yet... They did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now, what did John believe exactly? Did he just believe that Jesus was gone? No, Peter believed that too, and Mary believed that. John believed specifically Jesus must be alive right now, based on what he saw. So let me paint the picture for you. Let's try to figure out what he's looking at. Let's begin with Jewish burial. I'll refresh your memory. Whenever Jews buried their dead, they typically buried them the same day that their loved ones died. You die that day, you're buried that day. And the way they would bury, as we have mentioned, they did not embalm, but they entombed. So they took the body, and before it could decay, they would wrap the body in strips of linen, First, each limb individually, each arm, each leg, and then the body would be wrapped totally. Mixed in between the folds or the wines was a gummy substance, a mixture of myrrh and aloes, a sweet, odiferous, gummy substance that was quite weighty when you add that to the body weight. And that was put in between and on top of all of the folds so that it became sort of a... a, um, an encasement, a cocoon, if you will, this, this gummy that would eventually harden into a cocoon. That's how the Jews would bury them. They would, they would wind the wrappings from the ankles all the way up to the neck and stop. The head was treated separately with a cloth or a napkin or a turban, if you will. That's important to realize because when Jesus raises from the dead, the son of the widow at Nain... In Luke chapter 7, it says the little boy sat up and began to talk. The reason he could speak is that the wrappings weren't around his head. There was just a cloth. He could speak through it. That's why we read in John chapter 11, Lazarus came out of the tomb bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. That's how they buried the dead. So what is John looking at? Same thing Peter is looking at. Verse 6. He saw the linen cloths lying there. Now listen, literally it's he saw them lying in their 
folds, undisturbed, unfurled, not piled up in a heap, not in disarray, neat and orderly, just as when the body was there, all wrapped up. But the body is gone. That's what they were studying. Now let's say you and I could have been in the tomb the moment Jesus was raised from the dead. What would we have seen? Would we have seen him kind of like waking up and going, <coughs> and then like grabbing some of the bandages and pulling them off? No, that's not a resurrection. That'd be a resuscitation. And you would find, they would have found a pile of bandages here and there and spices scattered everywhere as Jesus got out of that cocoon. Rather, he was there, dead, and then he just, as John Stott put it, disappeared or vaporized through the cloth. Like passing through that cocoon, out of that encasement and out of the sealed tomb. By the way, the reason the stone was rolled away wasn't to let Jesus out. If he can get out of that encasement, he can get out of the tomb. Like later on, he could get in and out of rooms without using the door. The reason the stone was rolled away wasn't to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in to see this. It was an advertisement. Come and check this out, boys. So Jesus would have just left there, just vaporized. And the grave clothes, that cocoon, that encasement would have mildly collapsed like a flat tire because the body wasn't in it. John saw that and he goes, I get it. I get it. Nobody moved him. Nobody stole him. There's been a resurrection. See, let's suppose they're right, the generic they, who say, Jesus didn't die, he just fainted on the cross or swooned, and then he woke up in the tomb. Well, if that were the case, then you would read that they saw bandages scattered everywhere in the tomb because he got out. Let's say they stole the body. Let's follow that theory. If they would have stolen the body, do you think they would have unwound the body and then taken the body out and wound the windings back up so it looked like a body had been there? They would have stolen the whole encasement and trashed the bandages, thrown them somewhere else. John understood that. It was an epiphanal moment and he got it. There's an interesting detail. Look at verse 7. And the handkerchief. John wants you to know about that handkerchief. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Now, why does John include that? Simply as an added proof of a resurrection. Once Jesus passed through that encasement, he took the cloth and he folded it up and neatly placed it next to it. I know what's going to happen. Parents are going to leave today and they're going to be telling their kids in the future. Listen, if Jesus, before he could leave the tomb, could fold up that napkin, you can certainly make your bed before you go to school. I can just hear it. Fair enough. It was proof, added proof, of a resurrection. Not a stolen body, not a swooned resuscitation, but a resurrection. Something else I read in one of the commentaries that I found interesting. Um, According to Jewish custom, if you were the guest in somebody's house, you came over for dinner and they were very hospitable to you and you thought they were just great, you loved the meal, you loved the time. At the end of the meal, you would crumple up your napkin and throw it into the food the plate. 
But if you felt you really didn't like your company, they weren't all that hospitable, the food wasn't really that great, you would politely fold your napkin and place it next to the plate. It was a polite way of saying, I'm not coming back here again. Here's Jesus folding up the napkin saying, I'm not coming back here again. I haven't been treated all that nice. I came into my own and my own did not receive me. So here's Mary. She saw and she panicked. Here's Peter. He saw and he scratched his head and was puzzled and said, Wow, look at that, an empty tomb. Wonder what it means. Here's John. He saw the tomb empty, but he saw the unfurled encasement and he believed in a resurrection. But he had something. And this always puzzled me. And I draw your attention to it as we close. Verse 9. For as yet they did not know the Scriptures, that He must rise from the dead. Now what did they know? They knew that the stone was rolled away. They knew that the tomb was empty of a human body. They knew that there was that encasement still lying there and the napkin folded that they knew. And they formed their assumptions or belief system based upon what they saw and experienced. Solely upon their experience. Now by the time John writes this down, it's different. At that time they didn't know the Scripture, they only knew what they saw. But when John is writing this, now they know the Scripture. Now they put it all together. They formed a theology, an epistemology of why they know that Jesus Christ physically resurrected. So their faith that was once based upon experience and evidence, the open tomb, the body gone, the clothes intact, as good as that was to convince John at that moment, that's not enough to sustain a person through life. It seems that John saying, this is what I saw. This is what I knew and believed. But we didn't know the Scripture yet that He must rise from the dead. As if to say, there's something even better to base your belief and knowledge upon, and that's the objective, inerrant Scripture that has been predicted. The Bible predicted, Jesus predicted, that He would be risen from the dead. Now that's what John wrote. Peter, who was there that day, would say to John, Amen, Brother John. I I believe what he said. Because later on, when Peter writes one of his letters, he talks about the eyewitness testimony. I was there. I saw. I heard. But then he writes this. But even though I was an eyewitness and I saw and I heard, we have a more sure word of Prophecy. More sure word of prophecy. So how do you know that you know? How do you know anything? You could say, well, I know because I saw. Okay. Well, I know because I heard. Okay. But here's something better. What I saw and what I heard was predicted long ago in the prophets. So now I have my subjective experience and the objective prediction of the Bible. And that's unshakable. That is unshakable.
That's what I want you to see in this text. That's what I want you to walk away with. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. There's only two things that will live forever. The soul of a human being and the Word of God will endure forever. And attacks have come for the last 2,000 years. They're mounting again and afresh with a new atheist movement. And many of them are pointing their barrels at the Scripture saying, you can't believe it, you can't trust it. There's so many different accounts. And to the uninitiated, they would seem like compelling arguments. But no, the evidence, if you care to check it out, is there. That is objective evidence in the validity of Scripture, in the resurrection of Christ, and you marry the objective evidence to your subjective experience with Christ, and you have unshakable faith. Years ago, and I close with this, I know you've heard me say, I close, I close, I close. One of these times I'll be right. John Clifford wrote a poem about a blacksmith who was hammering pieces of metal with a number of different hammers that had worn down over time, the anvil that he was beating the metal on remained the same. And he writes this. I paused one day beside the blacksmith's door and listened to the anvil ring the evening chime. And looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn from beating years of time. And so I thought... The anvil of God's word for ages skeptics' blows have beat upon, and though the noise of infidels was heard, the anvil is unworn, the hammer's gone. And eventually all the new hammers that have been developed by your college professor, by your philosophy students or professors, or by books that are written, those anvils or those hammers will be gone and the anvil will remain the same. We have the experience that we have with Christ, which is valid only as it is tied to something that is outside of your experience that is objective, and that's the inerrant word of God in Scripture. That's unshakable. That, with that, you can face anything. Now, if you just have the inerrant word of Scripture, but you don't have an experience with God yourself, then it's not personal. If you have your personal experience, but it doesn't match what the Scripture says, then it's not reasonable put them both together, it's powerful. Father, we consider these things and we thank you that you as God, able to make the heavens and the earth, would certainly also be able to keep in written form the truth of what happened as well as your will preserved in book form. We have a more sure word of prophecy because the Bible tells us these men, though men, infallible, they were moved along and directed by your Spirit who prompted them with even the words so that Jesus could say, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. 
Now one jot, now one tittle will pass from the law until all of it is fulfilled. So Lord, even as John and Peter and Mary who saw things and formed a knowledge, a belief system based on that, they still said, what's better than what we saw and heard is what was predicted all along, which is what we saw and heard. Help us to live with that stability of faith, a faith that knows, a faith that is certain. I pray especially for those, Lord, who are facing death in some capacity, losing a loved one, have recently lost a loved one, are facing an unknown disease themselves, and possibly the termination of their own life. I pray for a, a special strengthening an increased faith that would sustain them in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.